0: Welcome to Anthony Plogon Music. I'm Tony Plogon. Today, I'll be speaking with trumpeter John Lewis and trombonist Bill Booth, who are at the top of their profession in the Hollywood studio scene. To get an idea of what that means, in part one of our conversation, we cover a number of different aspects of being a studio musician. And as an example of challenges faced, John and Bill talk about their experiences recording The Matrix films. So John Lewis and Bill Booth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great to see you. And I'd like to talk a lot about recording in Los Angeles, in the Hollywood studios and what it's like, because I think a lot of people who will be listening to this um, listen to the music. They hear the music all the time, but they really don't know how it gets recorded. So let's start with like right at the beginning, when you get a call to play a session, how long before a particular session do you get a call normally? What do you say, John?
1: Well, I think it's changed. It's I don't think there's any real default. It changes. Sometimes we get them months in advance if it's a big project, and sometimes we get them the day before. Mm-hmm. So it's it's quite variety-laden. It jingles, what very few they are, sometimes you get them the day of. I mean, those are really kind of last minute wow. generally for, for me. What mm-hmm. do you think, Bill?
2: Well, I think exactly like that. Although probably in years ago when when I first started and probably you, John, they were perhaps not as much notice, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a month or three weeks notice would yeah. be kind of the max, uh, whereas now it may be even a few months, as I recall. Yeah, I agree. So if it's a big session like, um, let's say Star Wars, you
0: both have played Star Wars, that the call for that would come in a couple of months before. Generally, yes. yeah,
1: yeah. And those were there's a different way of doing things with John Williams. Is that we didn't do typically if we did like when we did Waterworld a hundred years ago, um, we had probably maybe fifteen days of sessions altogether, and they were pretty much boom, 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 all of them in a row. And many projects are like that. You'll have three days of this or four days of this and a lot less. Now we can get in that talking about the digital age, but when John does his things now, you may have a Monday and then a Friday and then the following Wednesday. And then two weeks later, you know, they're really spaced out. And I don't know about Bill, but I I find that that's sometimes it's difficult to get in in the zone because it takes a day or so to really kind of get things together and then you're you're done. What would be the reason for that? I think just pacing for John. If I'm not sure, I'm not really sure why that change happened. It used to be different. That used to be consecutive days, mm-hmm. but not so much now with with him in particular. And would it be a single session or a double session? Usually doubles for mm-hmm.
0: him. Which would be what ten to one and two to five. Two to five. Right? Okay.
2: I was just going to add that perhaps uh, with John, he may feel that that the orchestra has a a fresh, a more fresh approach, if it's not day after day after day. But uh, that's only a a guess.
0: Once you get into the session, um, how much rehearsing do you do for a take? And I mean, a take or a cue could be anywhere
1: from like two or three seconds to what maybe seven or eight minutes. Or more. I mean, uh, more. James Horner used to do 12 to 15 minute things and we did a couple of uh, sweet things with Star Wars that were over 12 minutes. And it depends on the... I don't want to talk all the time, Bill, so please jump in there. But it depends on the type of production too. Back when we used to do TV, like the Star Trek shows and things like that, a lot of times the read-through would be, we'd be done after that. So they just record with the red light on. TV... I think, for my experience, runs a lot faster than motion picture. Sometimes the first run through, you're done, you're on the next cue, and you're out of there. But uh, like with John, going back to the sessions we did for Star Wars, he would kind of warm up the band and run through two or three cues, give a sense of what we were going to be doing. Then he'd go back and actually pay attention to each cue one at a time. Mm
0: -hmm. And when you go to a session, you haven't seen the music before, so you have to be fantastic sight readers,
1: correct?
2: Well, hopefully, yes. Although in uh, the last, I don't know, uh, five years or so, five to seven or eight years, it's become uh, common for some of the bigger uh, projects, and, and even not the biggest ones, to have the cues available online. So nobody is is terribly surprised about what they see anyway.
1: That's been helpful, and it's kind of nice. I've I've always been kind of an archival person. I like, you know, having some semblance of the music that we played, and uh, so it's kind of neat. You can download. I mean, you, if you wanted, you could download the whole orchestral thing, but I'll di- I'll download the trumpet things, and at some point, I'm doing a master class or whatever. I can say this is what it's like to record, and I'll pull out this cue and uh, and have you know college students all go, okay, here we go, one, two, three, four, and, and see how they do with that, and mm-hmm. it's kind of fun for that too. I remember you talking about The Matrix,
0: where there was this incredibly complicated line, I think, where there were four trumpets playing
1: the same figure, but they came in I think one sixteenth after another? <laughs> yeah, like an eighth note apart, yeah. I actually had a video that went along with it. I posted, I had the music and then the track playing, and you could see if you could follow it. And it just after about two lines, everybody just kind of, their eyes went blank and their brains went dead, kind of like us playing it. That was one of the toughest things. Bill, were you on those with uh, Don Davis? Yes, yeah. I do
2: uh, remember doing those and the fact that we did, uh, I guess it was three pictures in in a short time. I, I don't know, was it a, a month or so? Yeah, did right. all three. <laughs> and the music was, it was challenging. But, I I on the other hand wish that I had been an archival person as John has uh, just described. I've hardly saved any of those things, very few. But the fact that they are available for the most part, as we've said in that manner, makes it possible to do. And it would really, uh, really be good for anybody to do it who has the chance to keep those as a download. So when you you actually so normally when you show up at a session,
0: unless it's like a super important session, you still don't really know what you're going to do. But if it's going to be Star Wars or Matrix or something like that, now you can find the music in advance.
1: Yeah, I think that's changed quite a bit. But back, you know, back in the day in the 90s, I started recording around 1991. Um, I'm assuming Bill was quite a while before that. Maybe. (laughs) When did you move to L.A., Bill?
2: I moved in 1978 okay. to L.A. and uh, was fortunate enough to start recording within about three months.
1: That's fantastic.
2: It was unusually fortunate, I would say, yeah.
1: We'll get into that
0: in, in, in just a bit, but that is that is great. And you got to L.A., when was it that you got to L.A., John? In
1: 81. 81, okay. Yeah, okay. finished school and moved out there. Right, okay, okay.
2: Just back to the Matrix for a second... None of that music was available to us in advance. No, that was indeed. All, all before the advent of uh, the music being available in advance.
0: You know, and that's really stunning music. I mean, it's so effective with the movie. Um, and Don Davis is not known as a, as a composer. I mean, the way, of course, John Williams is, is the top guy, but there are a lot of other studio composers who have very well-known names, and he's not a well-known name, and that's a, a wonderful score
1: it is a wonderful score I, I I think that there was a it was kind of shocking to people that it didn't propel him into really the forefront you know and mm-hmm. I, I don't know why um that was a great score, and it was a hard score and and as you're talking about the length of cues and stuff, there were some long cues like that the big fight scene that you were mentioning the one we we're talking about and that's where the, the
0: the sort of evil character what was his name not was it Mr. Smith or
1: Mr. Mr. Smith was fighting Smith. neo
0: yeah, yeah, all these different Mr. Smiths, right and so that's yeah. why the you were one note apart
1: yeah and talking about how difficult that music was, if the theme was pop 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 da that da, that. Da, da, Da da da, da 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 everything started in different places off a of 16th off an of 8 on the beat last mm-hmm. 16th mm-hmm. and it kept changing and it was boom 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 and in the middle of it i was articulating things uh, starting with kk tt i mean just anything to get it out you know so when it comes to talking about preparation for the things it can't just be you know floors doors windows ceiling you have to really <laughs> be imaginative what you rehearse because when you read and I think Bill's probably the same way. I mean, I, I could pretty much read anything um, and down a step. That's the other thing with Matrix. Where we're reading all this stuff down a step because we're all playing C trumpets. Why was that? Just because it's just, that's what I do. And, uh-huh. and it's kind of the norm for my sections now. When, when we we're reading that, imagine, uh, and I'm pretty sure the section was Malcolm, myself, Boyd Hood, and Don Green. And there might have been a fifth. So three or four times into that, it just, it, we have, we always get really lucky the first time. I think the first run through on most things is really really maybe the best as far as my opinion on my playing for sure. Mm-hmm. And the more you do it, and you're like, wow, we got really lucky. Then we get less lucky the more times you do it. <laughs> and on something like that where you're having to jump in weird places and it's just so fast, you know, and and, and coming in all over the place. I just remember that being hair-raising, you know, but but exciting at the same time. And like Bill said, we did, uh, I think, Matrix Revolution. I can't remember the names of them, but there were three different ones all at once. Mm-hmm. And they seemed like they came out at the same time too, which was odd.
2: One thing that um, I would add about, you know, his, his not becoming a well-known composer is that he was certainly so highly respected by the other composers that, uh, the great ones. I mean he, he had had collaborated or done uh, uh, orchestrating for a number of, of the top composers, including John Williams and Randy right. Newman and uh, and certainly others too.
0: I've heard that Randy Newman is somebody that pretty much everybody likes to play with
1: because he's so funny in addition to being such <laughs> an incredibly great talent. Indeed, yeah. yeah. You know, he would start very mild, but once you make one crack and somebody laughed, laugh, then it's like, okay, the bar is open. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, oh, and he great. would just he would just take the orchestra out all the time. Huh. Very funny. Huh.
0: There was I remember hearing this story about just talking about Hollywood stories. There was an oboe player. Phil was his name. Who was a really funny guy. And they were this was years and years ago, and they were Phil recording Ailing.
2: A I imagine Phil Ailing, yeah, yeah. I think that's it, yeah.
0: And they were recording a scene for uh LA Law. And and so Mike Kerb was the com- conductor composer, and so he's explaining this scene to the orchestra, which evidently there's this this vial of of bull semen that's like extremely rare. Do you know this story? <laughs> no. Okay. Just it having is. a vial like that is extremely <laughs> yeah, rare for well, most I mean, of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and they're going to, they're having this big court fight over, over who has this, who gets to have this vial, right? And he's explaining this and he says, and then one of the guys just flips out and he takes this vial and he throws it against the wall and it shatters and everything's, you know, lost. And to which Phil replied, I hate it when that happens. And and the orchestra started laughing so hard, they had to call a 10-minute intermission. (laughs) So I guess guess certain things happen.
1: You know, Phil, in addition, he's a really very intelligent, knowledgeable guy. And he was uh, very instrumental with a lot of the contracts and everything. But he he always dressed kind of of disheveled, you know. So when they go to... when you go, to not not that bad, but when they go to negotiations, union negotiations, you'd have these guys in these $5,000 suits on the other side of the table. And Phil walks in and they're like, Here's this guy, but he would just shred them, you know, and they, wow. they came to really respect him. And he was very valuable and a wonderful player, just a great yeah. player. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was
2: terrific.
0: Well, tell me the difference between like if you record a movie or a TV back in the old day, a TV, well, I guess still now a TV series or Netflix, or like if you're recording with a singer, what are some of the differences in terms of the way they would record or the way you would have to play? And I'm actually, just to go back to what you said, John, I'm surprised now that a lot of people are using C trumpet because back in the day when I was living in LA, they only recorded basically with B flat trumpet and C trumpet was a, was a double. Yeah. But a lot of people are doing C trumpet now.
1: I think that transitioned. Well, I know it transitioned for me because that's where I started when I started recording. That's what I did. So uh, that's what I use exclusively, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what my sound was. And Malcolm was generally using Malcolm McNabb was generally using E flat trumpet, and I ah. would use C, mm-hmm. and Rick would use B flat. You know, and, and the more, I guess I'll, I'll just say commercial players. You know, back in the day when you're talking about where all mm-hmm. B flats, the and Bill you, or you, both of you can disagree. I I think there was a bigger tendency, you know, back in, with the big bands and everything else. A lot of those players were playing in Los Angeles. I mean, even you on Racing, not that he was a big band player, he was an amazing player, but B flat and John Audino and and um I'm gonna blank on all the names, John Kleinman, and all this goes. They were all B flat players, that's what it was. Right. But then when when it became more I think seemingly more orchestral, it just seemed to lend itself more for uh for recording. But
2: the doubles stand though, right?
1: That's right. That's the phrase. Yeah, that's the phrase. That's like <laughs> hey, can I hear that on on? C-trumpet, and it's like, you play, and now let's go back to it. And then the, the double stance Even for the two <laughs> notes you play, you get the double. And for those who don't know, a double is, if you're playing for scale, if you play a second instrument like C-trumpet or flugelhorn, or, and there's a flugelhorn story we can tell too, but uh, you get the first double's 50% over scale. So if somebody asks, say, hey, you want to hear that on, on C-trumpet? And I sound 50% better on C-trumpet. <laughs> By the way, speaking of scale, what is scale now? I don't know. I don't know either. I, I have no idea to tell you the truth.
0: Cause I, speaking of doubles, I, I remember when I was in L.A., I played um, a session with, with Bill Conti for a, a TV movie, I think it was, and in my part, there was one note that was for flugelhorn, and it was just a low B that nobody could hear, but because it was with horns, he wrote flugelhorn. And I think scale in those days was two hundred dollars a session, maybe. And so for a single. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so that one note got me an extra hundred dollars that nobody would ever hear. And and who knows, maybe you put that in there just to help
1: help out. You know? Oh, I'm sure you probably did. Really? I think I think generally scale's probably about depending on if it's we've got all kinds of different tiers now, about a hundred dollars maybe an hour for scale. And hmm. the principal players get uh, time and a half. Okay. And then, so back in the heyday, not so much now. Um, people would get a guaranteed double, mm-hmm. so you would automatically get time and a half, and if you're playing first, you would automatically get double scale. Right. And a lot of that's gone away, and a lot of things have changed. You know, with the biggest difference, as you were asking about, the difference between TV, movies, sound uh, jingles, and record dates, is that only one of those has back end payments, residuals, or whatever you want to call them, special mm-hmm. payments. Mm-hmm. And streaming does not, or it's very, we're trying to get that, because it's, it's a big loss not to have that. And uh, records to some extent do, but that changed over the years, too. And TV did not, really, unless, uh, every once in a while get like a 16 cent credit for a Deep Space Nine or something. But
2: Well, along with that, uh, also movies generally entailed uh, a soundtrack release, which was a uh, another financial component and uh, almost never uh, TV shows did.
0: Right. Bill, when you, when you would be playing, I know you've played a lot of uh, jazz too, big band and stuff like that. If you, if you're doing a recording, let's say for John Williams for star Wars, and then you do something that's much more commercially oriented, like a big band, do you play a different instrument? Yes. Uh, Like a
2: smaller trombone? That has changed uh, somewhat over the years too, but, uh, Yes, I would definitely use uh, a different instrument.
1: Bill, how is it for you if you, uh, in that regard, if you had, I don't know, like we have done sessions and I've heard you do it, where we have this orchestral thing and then the next thing is a jazz cue and you have to do this completely different personality and, um, you know, a lot more of a lead line kind of thing. And how, how I think it's interesting when that happens for all of us. And I'm, I'm asking, um, how do you, deal with that when you have to change hats? I know you guys have had to deal with complaints from people who've used different horns, but you, you you have to to do the, the jazz stuff, or you should if it's going to be correct, right?
2: Well, I think so, yes. And over, uh, over the years, I approached that really by just going ahead and, and using what I thought was the best horn and explaining to the contractor that that was was what was required to do the good job. And over the years, the one contractor that became the most comfortable with that, for me, who just said, yeah, whatever whatever you think is best, that's what you use, was Sandy DeCrescent, or Mm -hmm. is Sandy DeCrescent, I should say.
0: Would contractors know the difference?
2: I would say probably not, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, but the
1: contractors, I mean, the reason that Bill w- has been working as long as he is because the contractors trust him. They, you know, we if we're working, we've proven ourselves. And uh, Sandy has always been great about deferring to the musicians. She'll defer to the principal players for his sections. And if Bill says, we need to use this horn, she says, you got it. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard her say just those words before, you know very very supportive it's it's been pretty remarkable. not everybody's like that too. I think Bill would agree yes <laughs> there there was a time period once you get to a certain level where you're you know you're regularly called for things uh, or at least when I was starting, Malcolm said you need to ask for a guaranteed double if you don't, you're undercutting us and um, huh. and the okay. standard was that if you were doing the the primary work at this time. The, if you're a trumpet player you're going to get a guaranteed double so that meant calling the contractors and saying I'm requesting a guaranteed double so uh, I asked a couple of them and I was fine but then when it came time to ask Sandy to Crescent and this was this was a long time ago so um, no emails, no text messages I had to call service and I said I'd like to ask if Sandy could give me a call you know boss is going to call me and so she called back and she said you know what can i do for you i said well thanks for calling me back i just wanted to and i was really hesitant of course and i said i just wanted to say that um coming the new year i'd like to request a guarantee and she said you got it (laughs) and i was i was taken back i was like Really? She said, "Yeah, didn't know it'd be that hard, did you?" I said, "No." And she said, "No, you completely deserve it." Blah blah blah. And and I was like, "Wow." I mean, that was really neat. So,
0: wow. She sounds. I I remember her. I played a couple of jobs with her years and years ago. So, and she seemed she had very red hair then. I don't know if she still does or not. But uh, still does.
1: Yeah. I think she's eighty four now. I think. Wow. Yeah. She's she's amazing. Wow. And she's still doing it. Um. Not very much. She has. She keeps. She kept John Williams and Randy Newman, but like the last couple of things we did, she, she wasn't there. That doesn't mean she doesn't want to be. It's just I think she has some health wow. concerns or something.
0: Explain exactly what she does. So she's the contractor.
1: Well, she uh, interfaces
2: with the composer, certainly, about the people to be called, the, uh, the players to be called. I'm sure she makes the arrangements for the studios that are to be used for the recording. And in the case of Sandy, at least at uh, one point, she had a great deal to do with the copying uh, of the music, and I think still does, but uh, taking care of um, the details of the, of the contracts and calling the, uh, the tens, the breaks, and standing up and requesting quiet... <laughs> <laughs> quiet please <laughs> and it made a difference i mean uh, she she certainly had a, the respect of the players and in general i, I would say uh, all the contractors had, had the respect of the, of the players at least in that sense of uh, you know uh, it got quiet when they said quiet please <laughs> what else john would there be that i'm
1: leaving out um, budget have to submit have to submit the budgets Sometimes they're tied in with the different composers because, like, Sandy was John Williams' composer and Alan Silvestri's composer and Randy Newman and and pretty much every... Not everybody, I guess, but, you know. um, And she was tied in with that. So once you got on her list and she could trust you, you would be pretty busy. So she has to... Like, if she submits a budget saying this is what... And it's pretty standard at the time. I think it's a little bit different now, but... She was also the interface with management and the the producers and everybody else. So all of that had to, you know, synchronize. And then, you know, if I didn't show up, she was on the line. So she had to only hire the people that she knew that she could count on and trust. And when she gave you a chance to do something like she early on put me on a solo chair pretty early on for Elmer Bernstein one time and, and for Jerry Goldsmith. It was just one trumpet. Frightening as all get out, but she—it was like she was giving me a trial, and um, you know, and if you if you did well, then you you kind of indentured yourself a little bit better into that fold. So,
0: back in the day, they would have a screen behind the orchestra, and so they would run the cue on the screen, and you could actually, if you weren't
1: playing, you could see what was happening.
0: They don't have that anymore, or do they still have that?
1: They still do. Uh, productions that are, of course, with the internet. We run into a lot of problems of people posting pictures and and obviously causing spoilers. So we never saw any of the uh, the Star Wars footage at all. And also, we never saw. They also have measure counters for. See, you know, if you're not paying attention, you don't know where you are. But you can see bar fifty-seven, two, three, four, fifty-eight. 50, really? You know, and they turned those off. So definitely old school.
2: But those measure counters only appeared probably maybe 15 or 20 years ago. That's right. I would
1: say around 2000 or so. Yeah. Before that, the standard practice was, where are we? (laughs) In part two of our conversation, John and Bill
0: talk about how digitalization has changed the way music is recorded for films, and they share their thoughts on working with John Williams.